Morning New Hope. It's always nice to be with family. If you've got your outlines, I'd like you to just take them out now. It'd be a great time to do that. If you're visiting today, I want to welcome you. I'm so glad that you came. Welcome back to some of you who've been far afield in the land of California, doing some outrageously good things, which is fantastic. Welcome back, Bronte. Good to see you. Father, today, as we continue in this series on focus, I pray that, Lord, you'd focus our hearts, our minds, and our bodies on your word. And as we've just sung, Lord, our hearts agree. We we want to give us the vision that you want us to have. Show us how you want us to see the subject. Refresh and renew our minds that we may be transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all the people said. First quote on your outline says this. Christianity is supremely the champion of purity. Which sent me diving for my dictionary. What is a champion? A champion is a strong defender. A strong advocate. And what is a champion? A champion is somebody who fights for another's rights. So then I took that definition and popped it back into the quote. And it said, Christianity is supremely the strong defender, the advocate of purity. And I asked myself, is that still true today? Does purity still have her champion? Theoretically, she does. Because there has never been a more valiant defender of purity than Christianity. Nothing can compare on the face of this earth or in the universe to the power of Jesus Christ when it comes to cleaning up a life. Can I hear an amen? He cleaned my life up. He cleaned my brother's life up. 14 years as a heroin addict. And anybody who has dealt with addictions know what hell that is. When somebody you love inexplicably slides down a grease pole straight to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. And they hurt themselves continually and those around them and those that love them. It's a horrible place to be. I know that. My mother knows what it's like to live with an alcoholic husband. Addictions. But you know what? God, by His power of His Spirit, has set us free from that rubbish that promises the world and delivers trash. Nobody else can break the yoke of slavery to sin. Through his death and resurrection, we no longer need to be slaves to that. His death and resurrection offer us dignity in place of moral misery. And they offer us hope rather than hopelessness and a very cold and dark and bleak outlook. Only in him is that found. Without God, 
There is no hope. You finish, that's it. There's nothing else. Even ardent atheists like David Hume didn't like that. He said it's cold, dark, and lonely. Nothing. But with Jesus, there's hope instead of meaningless despair. Unlike those who don't have a saviour, who try to get their act together on their own addictions, together on their own strength, only yet to fail again. But the person that knows Jesus Christ personally, having received him by faith, has available to himself or herself all of the power needed to walk in purity. We don't hear that word very often, do we? But let's all understand today, it is not automatic. The battle for purity, friends, is not new. And if today all of a sudden the Apostle Paul were to materialise and come back in travel time right down to here and step into our century, he may be stunned at our technology. He'd go, whoa, and the cars rather than chariots. But our depravity wouldn't surprise him one bit. Why? Because in his day, 14 of the 15 emperors were gay. And they all had their little boyfriends that they abused. That was common for the day. He wouldn't be surprised at their depravity. And even though there were no crude talk shows or basically pornographic music videos on this thing called a TV in Paul's day, he was very familiar with divorce. He was very familiar with fornication. That is, sex before you were married. He was very familiar with adultery and homosexuality because we're widespread in the Roman Empire. Now today, moral erosion is an inescapable fact. I went to a conference this week put on by Family First, tremendously worthwhile. And they were noting, and, and the call of our culture today is, pleasure is supreme. Follow your feelings. Do whatever makes you happy. And again, the culture today mocks in a cynical tone. Purity, what's that? That went out with the Puritans. Now these slogans of our pleasure-obsessed society pulse from the media like a strobe light, mesmerising people into a state of moral apathy. Sitcoms depict abstinence as fit only for the undesirable, immature and dorkish. Advertisements blatantly try to seduce us into acquiring absolutely everything that our hearts desire. But before we go ahead and burn the media at the stake, <laughs> we have some confessing to do of our own. Christianity historically has advocated and defended purity. But that may no longer be the case. When we watch the news and we listen to the news and we read about current events, the church sometimes seems silent. So I want to suggest to you that maybe we have started to drift 
from our call to defend purity. Again, this week I want to refer back to the conference I went to, the Family Life Conference. Next time it comes around, if you stand for family, be there. It will equip you and it will enable you to be across the facts of the world. I listened to Professor Ryan Anderson, who's a Princeton, a Princeton PhD. And just to give you three words that sum up the, the views that are happening to marriage across the globe now, I'll give you three words. You may want to write these down. They're very short. I haven't put them in your outline. But if they come up, at least you'll know what they mean. The first one is, in the States, and specifically in France, the word thruples is becoming common. Thruples. You have a couple where you take out the two and you put multiple, three. Three in a marriage, uh, in a, a relationship. A thruple, that's what that is. Why shouldn't, the idea is now that marriage has been redefined, redefined, it's no longer defined as between one man and one woman. Where's the logic to say, why one? Why not two or three or four? Right now in the US, court cases are already making their way to the Supreme Court, just like the other one did to push for more than one. So this is our culture, friends. The second word is monogamish. Monogamish. And Dan Savage's arguments that straights may well do to imitate the monogamish norms of some gay couples. What that means, friends, is simply this. I'm basically monogamous, but I might stray from time to time. So I'm monogamish. That word's coming up. It's in the Washington Post, New York Times. These are not Mickey Mouse newspapers pushing this. The third one, which I find extremely crass, is we, as Christians, talk about wedlock, right? That means you engage and you lock. You're lock and loaded. The new word is wedlease. Write it down, wedlease, L-E-A-S-E. So I will have a relationship with you for, let's start out with a year, see how it goes. If it works out, I'll extend my lease. If it doesn't, I'll trade you out for a new one. We may laugh, mark my words, it is coming. You are going to have these conversations around the smoker table. There's, it's better to be informed and know what they mean and have started to think about your, what are you going to say when people start to promote this? to your grandchildren. How are they going to do that? So no longer with lot, but with lease. Maybe a one year, maybe a five year lease, maybe a 10 year with lease. Now far too many Christians have bought in to the pursued pleasure at all costs philosophy. And marriages, let me say this very soberly, are breaking up at an absolutely intolerable rate. Inside the church, let's forget about outside the church. Let's just forget about that because the Lord says judgment starts first in the house of the Lord, inside the church at an intolerable rate. And many churches are no longer placing holy living as a top priority. And that's why Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome in the same type of context that we have today to exhort them not to give in to sinful desires and to become slaves to sin. So I want to quickly pick up two sections of the New Testament written to the first century which vividly describes the internal warfare that was going on and goes on in our lives today. He says this in Romans 6.6 6, Your old evil desires were nailed to the cross with him 
that part of you that loves to sin was crushed and fatally wounded so that your sin-loving body is no longer under sin's control, no longer needs to be a slave to sin. Doesn't need to be. So the power and the penalty of sin died with Christ on the cross as a result. We are no longer slaves to our sinful nature and we can choose to live for Christ. And this involves cooperation on our part. We must yield to God's sanctifying grace. So what I'm saying in a sentence is this, living a pure life is a matter of choice. We cooperate with God's Spirit. Notice the following commands to the Christian. To the Christian. This is not to the world. They are clear, they are strong, and they are direct. Feel Paul's impetus here. He says, do not let sin control your puny body any longer. Talking to Christians. Do not give in to its sinful desires. Pretty strong, pretty clear, very direct. Do not let any part of your bodies become tools of wickedness to be used for sinning. But, so that's all the stuff you're not to do on that side. But, on the other side, the positive side, he says, give yourself completely to God. Every part of you. That means your eyes, your ears, and every other bit. Enough said. Every part of you to God. For you are back from death and you want to be tools in the hands of God to be used for His good purposes. So he said, if you want to be used for God's purposes, keep away from that stuff. And then he says to the Galatians, another bunch of people up in Galatia, Paul tells us to resist evil desires. He says, for we naturally love to do evil things. Isn't that terrible? That are just the opposite of the things that the Holy Spirit tells us to do. See, he's telling us, we're going, yeah, I know that, but nah, I want to do that. And the good things we want to do when the Spirit has its way with us are just the opposite of our natural desires. Now, these two forces within us are constantly fighting with each other to win control over us and our wishes and our wishes and are never free from their pressures. So the Bible is very honest. Without denying there is a real struggle that goes on in every person in this room. Or minimising the strong appeal of our flesh. It announces clearly we are not to yield to temptation. Now in Christ, the good news is, we have all the internal equipment necessary to maintain moral purity. You don't need another pill, potion, or anything else. Because the Bible says in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, what does it say there? His divine power has given us everything we need. Think about that. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and inherit, sorry, inherit the divine and escape the corruption of the world caused by what? Evil desires. So you've got everything you need. Don't fall for the thing. You're incomplete. You haven't got it. The newest Christian has everything he needs for life and godliness. 
It's not all and more, and more, and more. No, you've got it all. Otherwise, you'd have an excuse why I haven't got it all, therefore I can't do this. So yes, Christianity is still a champion of purity, but the challenges have never been greater. Now, the good news is that moral purity is an attainable goal. Moral purity is an attainable goal. During Paul's second missionary journey, he travelled to Europe. It was a region of the world that had never even heard of Christianity before. And in cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth, he proclaims, he goes there, they've never heard the message, he proclaims the message of salvation, holding up the hope of forgiveness and cleansing to all who will listen. And then about six weeks later, he sits down to write and follow up with his churches and to underline and intensify what he'd spent time telling them. So we get an insight into what he was telling these people about sexual purity. Now Paul, writing to the believers, first of all in Thessalonica, to warn them, he warns them about letting the poison of sexual immorality seep into the church. He says this, let me add this, dear brothers. You already know how to please God with your daily living. For you know the commands that we gave you from who? From the Lord Jesus. So this came straight from the boss, straight to you. What were they? Now we beg you, no, stronger. We demand of you in the name of the Lord Jesus that you live more closely to that ideal. What was that ideal that he spoke about when he was with them? Here it is. For God wants you to be holy and pure. Some of you ask me, what is God's will for my life? There is the answer in black and white. He wants you to be holy and He wants you to be pure. That has implications for what you watch, look at, listen and do. Conversations you listen are a part of. God wants you to be holy and pure and to keep clear of all sexual sin so that each of you will marry in holiness and honour. See the high value of marriage? Not in lustful passion as the heathens do in the ignorance of God and His ways. So remember, he's getting after who here? The heathen or Christians? Who's he, who's he addressing? Christians. So Paul is, encourages us to keep clear of all sexual sin. Now this, you may want to circle that verse because it's the, one of the very few rare times in the entire New Testament that there's ever total abstinence instructed. One of the very few times, right there. There it is. Let's read it again from the First Thessalonians 3 from the ESV version. This is another way of putting it. This is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There it is. Dr. Robert Thomas is defining what Christian holiness is. And he says, Christian holiness, says Paul, requires total abstinence from porneus. Total abstinence from porneus. And that's a Greek word which covers, it's a very broad term, it covers everything all the way from fornication all the way through to adultery. This, this is where we get the word pornography from. All the way. 
Remember what Jesus said, you even look at a woman. And this word requires broad definition. Don't let anybody play mind games with what that word means. If you want to even know, by the way, what the word means uh, in, in the Bible, you go onto the, on, onto the internet and you look up, it's called an interlinear, and it'll show you the Greek word, what it means, and the English word equivalent. So nobody will swizzle you what that means. So then Paul follows his command up. He says, verse four, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour. Now notice the individual responsibility. He's saying, learn to control your own body. Now I want to take a little side tour here. Evangelical theology typically says very little about the body. Very little. We say a lot about the soul and a great number of things about the spirit of man and even the mind, but relatively little is ever said about the body in evangelical theology. However, if you actually read the Bible and you look at the New Testament, I wanted to show you a few things what it tells us about the body, which we very rarely focus on. He says, I am to present, it says here, what am I to do with my body? I am to present, or in this case we, I present our bodies, not spirit, not soul, bodies, as a living sacrifice that's set apart. Holy and acceptable to God. Which, when you do that, is your spiritual worship. I want to worship God. It's not just all singing. In fact, singing is one portion of worship. It's how we live our lives. Presenting our bodies as a holy and living sacrifice. Romans 6 says, I'm not to offer my body as an instrument to unrighteousness, but to God. It says, do not offer the parts of your body, your eyes, ears, and organs to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought excuse me, from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. And here again, verse 15, a little further down. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Never. Now you compare that. The Roman climate of that day was much like our own. Impurity was viewed with either passive indifference, yeah, big yawn, that's their business, or just open favour. Divorce and homosexuality were pervasive. Don't you love technology? Finger problems. Christians back then were like islands of morality in a sea of immorality. Vast oceans of illicit sex and promiscuity. That was the context back then. Now knowing the current temptations that swirled around them, Paul counseled them strongly to abstain. An open shut case for total abstinence of sexual, from sexual immorality. Now for Christianity to retain its role as a champion of purity, Paul expects Christians to be above reproach. 
We do. Paul expects the church to be above reproach. The same is true today as it was in the first century. Talking about how to maintain a pure lifestyle, this is what he says for you. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do, who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, important part, this verse, very important. Whoever disregards that, this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So clearly, to live in sexual sin is to reject God. That's what the Bible says. That's God's word to us. So God laid down these rules, actually, basically One rule. He laid down one rule. And it's sex is for married people. Let me be clear, a man and a woman only. Anyone who refuses to live by the simple rule, who treats sexual sin lightly, is not disobeying human rules. Because human rules, guess what they do? They change. Witness the change in sexual rules in New Zealand culture. In the past 15 years, what's been pushed through in Britain now where you can marry your sister? Are you crazy? Yeah, I'm telling you, this is serious stuff. That's why we're focusing on purity today. Last week, 30 million people found that their secret was brought into the light. Ashley Madison's hotline was life for short, having a fear. That's a fat lie. Here's the truth. Life is eternal, don't have an fear. Because you will stand before a judge. Who will judge that? To go with the flow of the surrounding culture and to disregard God's rules about sexuality is tantamount to rejecting God. Now, people, don't get me wrong, they are free to make their choices. They're just not free to choose the consequences of their choices. Now, in view of all God has done, how can we live in a way that is pleasing to Him? Well, I can't, I mean, say it any shorter than take control of your body. It's impossible to come to terms with moral purity without dealing with some practical aspects about the fleshly appetites that crave satisfaction. And I've had those discussions with young people and old people alike. Here again, the Bible is very clear. 1 Corinthians 6.13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. A few verses further down, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Notice this, not every sin is equal. Now, wrong's wrong, but you can be wrong by a millimetre, or you can be wrong by a thousand kilometres. That's a whole area of theology called absolution. But here's the point. Notice how he singles out this type of sin rather than any other sin. He says, every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now the Bible says we possess a number of appetites that are ready to respond, all too ready to respond to the surrounding stimuli, all of which seem very appealing and satisfying. Let me ask you right now, are you aware of the danger zones? Let me be very straight with you men. You men who travel, do you have a strategy when you travel away from your brides and your families? You think nobody's watching you? There's bookshops at the airport where you know you shouldn't be. Nobody's there when you're in Vegas. God is. Be careful. Have a strategy to manage those temptations. I know what that's like, going away with 40 guys, half of them, they've got other things on their mind. Away from colleagues. Remember this verse from 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. I remember in the commercial world, especially IT, where the, where the uh, booze flows freely, no expenses left, $500 night hotels. Some people think it's a waste not to use them for other things. But in abstaining from that, the Lord used that to open doors to talk about Christ. And it's remarkable how interestingly my colleagues were willing to listen. Because deep down behind all the bravado, folks are longing to find meaning and to rid themselves of that nagging guilt. That nagging guilt is the other side of sexual impurity that the merchants of hedonism never mention or the implication. So 30 million people got sprung on Ashley Madison. Perhaps they have a spouse. That's 60 million. Let's crank up a few kids in there. We're well over probably 100 million people affected by that. And those are the ones we know about. Purity won a hearing. Purity will win a hearing. In our day of moral decline, it's easy to think that purity is unachievable. But here is the counsel of God's word from the NIV version. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. That's from the NIV version. First Thessalonians 5. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. I was really blessed to see that the Helton have sacked all of their adult channels. Good job. They got my vote. And again, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness. Do you see the focus that Paul had on this? Deny ungodliness and worldly desires and instead live sensibly, righteously and godly in this present age. That's God's spirit instruction to us. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of glory of our great God and Saviour Christ Jesus who gave himself for us that he may redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself. Purify for himself a people for his own position, zealous for good deeds. And finally, 
Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behaviour excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing that which they slander you as evildoers, they may account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God. So clearly, from those scriptures, and we've looked at a whack there, clearly God wants his people to focus on purity. His spirit, though, wonderfully stands to assist us and to empower us. Because he says here, no temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now comes the toughest part. Moral correction is a biblical mandate. When a Christian willfully and deliberately chooses to walk in an impurity, he or she is not the only one who suffers the consequences. Well, I'm not hurting anybody. Yes, you are. Don't buy that line. That's a flat lie. That's not true. That decision brings reproach on the whole body, the whole family to which he or she belongs. Now, since as a church, we are members of one another, we are accountable to one another, even when we may not want to be accountable and held accountable. It's still an undeniable fact. New Testament passages, you can put it down the side. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14 through 27 talks all about that. I haven't got time to go into that. But they paint a vivid picture of mutual concern, mutual interest, and mutual accountability. We are not islands, isolated islands without an identity. Nor are we to respond with casual indifference when one of our brothers or sisters starts sliding down this slippery pole into immorality. Listen. Dear brothers, if a Christian, notice a Christian, is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help him back into the right path, remembering that next time it might be one of you who is in the wrong. Share each other's troubles and problems and so obey our Lord's command. Again, James, Jesus' brother says, Dear brothers, if anyone has slipped away from God and no longer trusts the Lord and somebody helps him to understand the truth again, that person who brings him back to God will, be saved, uh, will have saved a wandering soul from death. Bringing about the forgiveness of many sins, today is an interesting day for some more blacks. Today they'll learn whether they're in or out of the World Cup squad. That's a, some of their hearts are pounding in their chest. They're very anxious. They're nervous. There will be a day. And what happens is they're going to get a call from Steve Hansen. You're in. Or they'll get no call. One day, there will be a call. And we will leave terra firma. And the Bible says, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, they're in. Those who are not, 
they're out. There will be a day of accountability. We forget that. We become too casual. Life and death, eternal life and death are at stake here. That's why he spends so much time underlying, intensifying his focus on purity because you go, look, it says those who are immoral, those who are swindlers, those who are cheats and thieves and homosexuals and adulterers and fornicators, it's very plain. There's a lot of them. I didn't mention them all, there's about nine. Nine? Yeah. Yeah? Nine. She was just memorising it the other day. <laughs> there's nine of them. The Bible's clear. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. Focus on purity, friends. So then, Jesus foresaw the need for this. So when he instructed his followers to pursue those who stray, not, oh, well, it's their fault. Let them get on with it. Nothing to do with me. That's exactly what Jesus said not to do. He instructed them to pursue. And if a brother sins, go and reprove him in private. They're all good conversations. I've had one too many of those. If he listens, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take a couple more witnesses along with you. I should read it exactly. Take one or two more with you. So that by, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So no gossip, just the facts. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer, an outsider. Clear, uncomplicated. How many fellow Christians do you know who conscientiously follow Jesus' direction to confront the wayward and rescue those who have strayed? Now, please hear this. He is not suggesting a harsh, uncompassionate assault on all who have temporarily lapsed into sin and soon thereafter acknowledge and repent of the wrong. The question really is, is where is a Christian friend who is willing to risk being misunderstood to help another believer repent and come to full restoration. Will you help? Purity is not only a personal matter, it's a group project. And his name, his name, the name above all names, is at stake here in the final analysis. The ultimate objective accountability is to restore fellow believers is help them get them back on their feet, free of the anchors of guilt and shame that have crippled their walk. That's not where they were walking. You can't keep walking as a Christian if you're crippled with shame and guilt. And the reason why is they haven't confessed their sin. One of the powerful proofs that Christianity is a champion of purity is the compassionate efforts of family members helping one another, brothers and sisters, to get out of that ditch. None of us are above reproach. Even if it takes an initial jolt up front in that confrontation. 
Now, I can't end this message without finishing with two questions. Are you a Christian who has started to slip morally? And you may think, oh, it's just a small slip, Pastor Ian. But it's like a clutch. If it starts to slip, it won't be long until it just goes bang and you've lost all traction. Address it quickly. Second question. Will you be man or woman enough to deal with it? And I mean completely. Since Christianity and purity belong together, let's collectively focus our energies and champion that cause that brings honour to the name of Christ. Would you bow your heads? Father, today, I felt that your word and your spirit wanted to focus on purity. Because Lord, you're coming back for a bride which is spotless. I pray today that Holy Spirit, you would move in people's lives, convict in a way that only you can do. that encourages us to move forward and to, and to confess our sin. To repent. To turn around. Father, by your Spirit, when we're watching stuff on TV, or the internet, convict us. Make us uncomfortable. Give us the power, Father, and the way of escape. Father, when we're listening to stuff at work, give us wisdom. Not to be holier than thou at work. Father, as parents, I pray that you would give parents insight into what's going on in their own homes. Father, May we always live with integrity before you, before our spouses, before our children and our grandchildren. We want to be true ambassadors for your purity. Thank you for the ministry of your spirit here today, Lord. Today, there is some of you who are stuck. Let me just say the word stuck. And you don't know how to get out of that and you want to get unstuck. Let me know about that in the communication card. Just fold it, stick it in the, in the offering bucket and um, I'll be in touch with you this week. God bless you.